0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And starting on a very happy note... Thanks to the generosity of several of our fellow saloners who either bought a copy of one of my books or who made a direct donation to the salon. Well, now that my friend John Jay covered this month's expenses, uh, we also now have a really good start on next month as well. So uh, everything is uh, on schedule and under budget. Now, uh, what we're about to hear is the beginning of a weekend event featuring Terrence McKenna that took place during the month of August 1993. Maybe you know somebody that was there. Apparently it was a uh, large crowd, and as usual, the workshop began by going around the room and letting people say a little something about themselves. Since this is an unedited tape, I'm assuming that none of these people gave their permission to have their names and stories made public, and so I cut all of that out. However, you'll be hearing all of Terrence's opening remarks for the evening. And one of the first things that he brings up, interestingly, was his own role in the new world of infotainment. Uh, He even referred to himself as a dancing bear. (laughs) And uh, I think that you'll find his observations are quite intriguing. So let's go back in time to a Friday night in California during the month of August
1: 1993. So... One of the things that's really important, I think, about psychedelic get-togethers, however marginal and contrived, is that everybody gets to see who else is in the community. (laughs) Uh, You know, most of the time we're fairly deep in the closet and can't be told from a typical convention of investment bankers or sports car enthusiasts or anything else. Well, I won't keep you too long tonight, because as I said, a lot of people came a long distance. Uh, I always think about these things uh, before, because I wonder, you know, is it changing? And is, what's my role in relationship to it? Is it to, have I sort of fallen into being um, some kind of uh, gatekeeper, or in a worst case, dancing bear? You know, this issue of infotainment. And uh, uh, recently I found myself in clubs at four in the morning raving at people at high decibel with the perfect knowledge that they couldn't understand a word I was saying. <laughs> and I wonder, you know, this is a strange thing to happen to a philosopher. <laughs> is this what my daddy raised me for? clubs <laughs> are <laughs> Blow my cover. Well, not in LA yet. In San Francisco, we did a rave at uh, was it the Paradise Club, the Down Below Market, and in the Fox Warfield, I appeared with the Shaman, which was insane. I mean, to they give you a microphone and just push you on stage and it's just breathing on one of these microphones makes the walls move back you know and uh, and megatropolis in in London I appeared there and knowledge the point being you know I keep trying to understand where to put the the psychedelic experience in terms of the available cultural pigeonholes is it to subvert academic thinking? Is it to ignore all that constipated bourgeois dominator malarkey and go for the kids? Uh, and and then I you know I've been here as scholar in residence for a week, and so I've given a couple of lectures, which naturally some of the themes we'll talk about have been anticipated, and I think you know. <clears throat> what, what is the point of thinking this way, the way I'm willing to purvey, rather than some other way? I mean, what is so great about this point of view? And I decided that it's actually uh, the final defense is that it's the most fun. that I don't, I think it's, and this is not normally how we evaluate ideologies. Normally the concern is, which is true? And then whatever is decided is true, no matter how dreary and depressing that may be, then somehow because it's true, some enormous moral obligation descends upon you to believe in it. I remember this from my own intellectual journey when I was 14, 15, and 16. The world looked very bleak. And uh, so I read Camus and Sartre and the lesser lights of that dreary French existential school. And because it was true, you had to come to terms with it, supposedly. You know, life is a drag. But as you as you uh, mature intellectually or as you spiral off the track into madness whichever my particular development can be described as you discover that truth is uh, philosophical coinage for the naive the banks of philosophy do not trade federal truth certificates that's uh, for the hoi polloi Uh, What's going on among the professionals is something uh, very different, a sense of the limitations of knowledge. "Cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, appeared to be a kind of axiom, a kind of bedrock statement. I think, therefore, I am... Now somehow in the 17th century this appeared to have some kind of incontrovertible logic about it Uh, like, uh, you know, I am I but when you analyze it it's an incredibly complex statement embedded in assumptions that can barely be languaged I mean, just look at the connector, therefore ...and try to wrap your mind about, around what, what this actually means... ...and what are the limits of the meaning and, and what is implied. It's a profoundly intuitive concept, not easily languaged. Uh, all knowing is incredibly provisional. And this is something which is hidden within the context of a culture because cultures don't run around announcing how they haven't got their acts together that's not what culture is about culture is all about announcing how we do have our act together look at this gothic cathedral or look at this stonehenge or look at this wonderful human sacrifice we just put on here we know what we're doing we know how to run nature and ourselves in the 20th century at last, the evolution of philosophy has become sophisticated enough to sort of question this search for truth. I I studied philosophy from somebody some of you may have read or personally known, Paul Feyerabend, who was a, a wonderful philosopher of science and essentially an anarchist. He wrote a book called Against Method, and uh, he talks in there about the provisional nature of knowing and how naive we are in the ways in which we manipulate data about the world Uh, just as an example uh, we uh, imbibe without question the very complex philosophical assumptions that lie behind probability theory so that for instance talking about averages poses no intellectual uh, problem for us. You know, if you measure, if you want to know how much current is running through a wire and you take ten measurements and you add them and you divide by ten, we then say this is how much current is running through the wire. Strangely enough, when you go back to your original ten measurements, no one of them may be the value which you now announce to be the true value for the current running through the wire. All of our epistemic enterprise, all of the effort to understand the world, is hedged about by this uncertainty. Wittgenstein was once asked uh, uh, if a particular proposition uh, was true, And, and he said it's true enough. (laughs) <laughs> and, and this is modern, this is the voice of modern philosophy where at last enough simple common sense has sunk into the philosophical enterprise that we're now talking about things being true enough rather than, you know, uh, the revelation of God's truth. I mean, good grief if you met a termite wandering across the floor of the jungle and interviewed him on his life's work and he announced that it was the discovery of certain truth, you would be fairly condescending in how you related to that. Well, but do you believe that you are greatly different in your cosmic positioning than that termite? You know what? Monkeys are better at this than uh, insects? I don't think so. So uh the the i i spend a lot of time trying to make my ideas seem rationally apprehendable but in a way that's just uh, sight of hand the they their their attraction for me and i hope for you is not their rational apprehendability but that they're fun that you can't top this for fun. I mean, if you can, I'll convert to your way of doing it. Uh, Because, uh, you know, the phenomenal world is delightful. It's humorous. It has locked within itself all the adumbrations and reflections of its um, aspirations, its past... And it's uh, unfulfilled possibilities. I I really think this is the, the, the... What the psychedelic thing is about, or at least for me, is it's a kind of sensual glorification of multiplicity. That's why, you know, if we were to look at spiritual traditions and place them into... Try and categorize them into great or weaning categories then I think what you would get are the minimalist schools which are all about white lights nirvanas satori's shunyatas and things largely unsayable that discourse despairs of describing uh, and the, the, those ontologies that glorify the phenomenal world and that would be paganism, uh, psychedelic thinking, shamanism. Uh, these Notice that these are more nitty-gritty positions, not driven by a thirst for abstraction, but driven by a thirst for sensation. And I, the, the, to my mind, the centerpiece of, of the experience of being... And the centerpiece of the psychedelic experience and, and the point around which the great issues of, of modernity revolve is the issue of the felt presence of experience, the relationship of the individual to the sensorium of the body. I mean, we see it in all kinds of subtle ways uh, and unsubtle ways. Unsubtle ways the whole issue about a woman's right to control her reproductive processes Uh, subtle ways, the way in which the entire society is an engine for producing certain behavioral outcomes in the marketplace Uh, everybody is being programmed uh, and manipulated and I think the the antidote to that, in some sense, is this wider appreciation of complexity and experience. Experience. The reason the psychedelic thing is so powerful and can touch so many people of so many different classes and outlooks is that it's an experience. It's not an ideology. I and mean, So we're not talking... Uh, something which competes on a level with, like, say, Marxism, behaviorism, deconstructionism. This is something which is more operating on the level of sexuality, emotion, uh, devotion. It's a feeling. And it's uh, a birthright of the organism that has been... uh, socially restricted and controlled in a very weird way we are literally a schizophrenic species I mean we are at war with our own nature civilization whatever that means is felt to be so fragile an enterprise that uh, it's constantly refusing to come to terms with the context in which it finds itself which is the animal body, sexuality, emotion, pain, desire, elation, ecstasy. And so we go outside of those things and create a generalized abstraction and reason backward. The, the, it's very, the reason psychedelics, I think, are so frightening to the guardians of social order is because they represent a direct addressing of experience and for a very long time i mean one millennia five millennia choose a number experience has been hierarchically distributed in human society from the top you know you get a christ or a hitler or a pope or it's either it's a leader of some sort or a visionary and then the exegesis of the vision is passed down through and we imbibe it as a product coming with the sanction of social correctness this has turned... this has had a kind of neotenizing effect on us as human beings what I mean by neoteny is the the um, retention of juvenile characteristics we have allowed ourselves to become more and more childlike uh, to the point where now uh, some considerable percentage of us uh, allow ourselves to be warehoused in a larval condition most of our waking lives watching television. And uh, consumer object-based fetishism and the cycle of production of money for the acquisition of fetish material then the uh, inevitable disappointment the reformulation of the fetish so forth and so on this is what occupies us you know it was William James I think who said if we don't read the books with which we line our apartments then we are no better than our cats and dogs and uh, I uh, I Yes, I would say, and if we don't take the psychedelic plants that are in the environment that we can avail ourselves of, then we are no better than our cats and dogs. There are doorways open to us, but they are all experiential and personal. They lie in the realm of sexuality and um, I guess what you would call experimental psychology. And areas where we get very nervous and want to follow rote, follow tradition, and be assured that we are not deviant, that we are not strange, that we are not violating any of the canons uh, of the tribe. But I think because of the social crisis, meaning this vast, generalized sense that everyone has, that things are out of control... Uh, we are going to have to go back to first principles. And and what that means is a return to the authenticity of the body. You know, McLuhan wrote about how media distorts human self-images. One of the reasons that I'm involved in virtual reality and electronic media and all of that sort of thing is because I think that the age of the distortion of the human self-image by media is coming to an end, that the medias of the future will be largely transparent and that this is very important because it's going to allow us to discover who we are. You know, a person who can read is a person who possesses an ability that is tremendously distorting of their essential relationship to their humanness. I mean, if language is a bizarre activity, and no question that it is, reading is orders of magnitude more bizarre yet, because, you know, abstract signs are being manipulated at close to conversational speed, in some cases faster than conversational speed. Uh... So much of culture is complex behavior. And I think that what the psychedelics show that is a secret that some people don't want told is that we can redesign our behavior. We can change very, very quickly. Uh, The image of ourselves as somehow the rigid inheritors of evolutionary programming and therefore doomed like lemmings or monarch butterflies to enact a programmed pattern of behavior and destroy ourselves isn't what I see happening at all. The whole history of humanness is a history of unexpected adaptive response to unusual circumstances And I believe that's because the imagination has played such an important role in defining who and what we are. And whatever the imagination is, uh, psychedelics catalyze it. Psychedelics enhance it. Uh, The thin bandwidth of interior... Self monitoring that goes on in normal consciousness becomes much more clear, three dimensional, and intensified uh, uh, under the influence of psychedelics. If you know, these things used to be called consciousness expanding drugs, it was just a good old phenomenological description. Well, consciousness or the absence of it is what is pushing our species toward some kind of uh, uh, crack-up. So if there are factors uh, in the rainforests, in the arctic tundra, in the toolkits of preliterate and aboriginal people that can act to transform consciousness, then we, we this is where we have to put our attention. If we could feel the consequences of what we are doing, we would stop doing it. The reason we don't stop is because we are partially partially anesthetized to the consequences of, uh, you know, untrammeled population growth, unregulated uh, capitalist market-oriented behaviors, so forth and so on. We are semi-conscious. This is our problem. We're like someone... Half awake inside a burning building. You know, are we going to suffocate and become a crispy critter? Or are we going to sufficiently integrate the situation to grope our way to an entrance and call 911? Uh, in our case, I don't know who comes when you call 911. Uh, but it's something like that. Uh, During the weekend, we'll talk a lot about human history because I think human history is something that we are far too blasé about. We take it for granted because our own lives are so ephemeral last, you know, 70 years or something. We think of history as something that was installed with the rocks. But in fact, it isn't. It too is a behavior, very recent. Like language, another behavior, very recent. Physically, human beings have been about the way we are for a hundred thousand years, much the way we are for half a million years. But the behaviors have changed radically, you know, from nomadic partnership. From societies based on shamanic intoxication, orgiastic sexuality, uh, no fixed abode, to a massive, integrated, global, electronically based civilization. Uh, these are extraordinary modifications of behavior it 's as though hummingbirds were to begin assembling locomotives that 's the kind of radical transformation that we see inside our own species. Well then the question is what 's it about you know why what we are doing by replacing one behavior after another, never resting, never satisfied is in practical terms, we're accelerating the entire temporal continuum. We seem to be pushing process toward some kind of um, dimensional apotheosis of some sort. We're not content to let things rest. And human history is the... the um, Record of this process, which begins as a kind of random walk. I'm sorry, a kind of random walk across the epigenetic landscape of culture, but the the random walk finds a compass heading, and this compass heading is has many names. I mean, you can call it unity. You can call it God. You can call it a chicken in every pot uh... you can uh... uh... call it completion but whatever it is uh... freedom seems to be its central feature we want freedom we want freedom from the constraints of the cycles of the sun and the moon we want freedom from drought and weather freedom from the movement of game and the growth of plants freedom from control by mendacious popes and kings, freedom from ideology, freedom from want. And this idea of freeing ourselves has become the compass of the human journey. That which doesn't free doesn't serve. I mean, this has become almost a a kind of universal ideal. No one on earth, preaches the virtues of slavery i mean there may be people who practice slavery but they have the decency to keep their mouths shut about it because the defense of slavery has become uh, impossible in polite company uh, slowly there has been uh, i think over time the growth of an ideal of what human perfection is first worked on by the great religions and then uh, sometime I suppose around the time of the Italian Renaissance handed over to secular forces that begin to say you know freedom is uh, more than the right to wear wool and pray 24 hours a day Uh, freedom means uh, the acquisition of uh, property of uh, the visible manifestations of wealth, the acquisition of information, freedom with the publication of the first books becomes becomes associated with accessing the database of the culture. Well, what we've learned through Freud and Jung is that the database of the culture goes deeper than we may have anticipated and that the final keys... To the deeper levels are in fact plants that were part of our shamanic heritage millennia ago. So freedom has become uh, basically a project in the Blakeian imagination that Blake called it the divine imagination. We now dream of transcending the constraints of matter, space, time and energy themselves. I mean, this is what stuff like nanotechnology and uh, virtual reality and this sort of thing is about. We wish to find ourselves in the imagination. Well, I maintain that uh, this desire is a kind of nostalgia for a paradisical. Uh, possibility that actually existed in the past and that to understand the human predicament we're going to have to come to terms with the idea that which has been around for a long time but not given much coinage recently that history is a fall that this is a lesser state than we have known in the past that all this material culture and all this exhibition of energy control and so forth and so on is actually, uh, these are the toys of lesser gods and that uh, being integrated in nature at peace with the rhythms of life and death and co-identified with the eternal organism of community that these were actually higher... Uh, and nobler ideas that somehow became compromised uh, with the fall into history and it has to do uh, with our relationship to the lost continents of our own minds I mean that's what this psychedelic thing is really about I think it's as profound as uh, uh, the European discovery of the lost half of the planet 500 years ago It's that half of the human mind became disconnected uh, from the ego. And for a thousand years or more these things have drifted in such profound estrangement from each other that when reunited the only thing we can map it to is a flying saucer invasion or a descent of angelic intent or something because we have become so alienated from the collective images of, uh, of the soul. And while it's true that shamanism has existed forever and ever, and that people, some people, midwives, shamans, visionaries, schizophrenics, uh, have been doing this in all times and places, nevertheless, it now has a special... Poignancy, because the the official philosophy of our civilization, capitalism, materialism, reductionism. I guess that's it. Maybe misogyny is in there somewhere. Uh, is has played itself out. It's failed. Modernism has failed. Modernity has failed. The the rational analysis of matter has led to the revelation of the irrationality of matter. Uh, The uh, uh, attempts to uh, create systems of perfect deterministic prediction have led to the revelation of the chaos that haunts all systems and makes all prediction in principle impossible. The prosecution of the dream of a formal edifice of logic to explain uh, uh, mathematical structures and truth has given way to Gödel's incommensurability theorem, which shows you that basically nothing makes sense. Uh, everywhere where reason has shown its light, this the uh, greater darkness has been revealed. And so... I think a turning point has come in the human enterprise. Childhood's end is upon us. We have to drop the naive assumptions of certain truth, (coughs) perfect understanding. Uh, uh, The conjuring rod of reason turns out to be a fairly weak magic after all and we have to begin to cultivate a sense of mystery a sense of living without closure because that in fact is how the world is the world is a mystery it's not going to yield to the fragile constructs of the human mind some portion may be rationally apprehendable but the basic uh, facts of the matter are that we do not know where we come nor why, nor where we're going, nor according to what plan. And instead of seeking a flawed communication with the intentionality of deity, I think the psychedelic religious agenda, if that's how you want to think of it, uh, is a more modest one. It's a cultivation of a sense of wonder in the presence of something which obviously cannot be encompassed by the human mind. I mean, it can no more be encompassed by the human mind than the ocean can be emptied into a thimble. And uh, once you get that straight, you can go back to getting high, staying tight with your friends, making love, growing your garden and uh, appreciating the, uh, the felt presence of experience and realizing that the abstraction game, the high modeling game, is in fact simply a game and that there should be no emotional investment in these structures I mean, what I've learned from the mushrooms, ultimately, is that ideas are for play. And uh, the final payback from all of this is uh, a sense of fun, a sense of humor. The truth, for sure, when it arrives, will make you smile. If it doesn't, uh, you know, you should seek uh, a deeper truth. And so... Uh, you know, for a long time it troubled me, this question of, of truth and falsity. And now I think that it's more like this, that the person who has the best idea, or let's put it this way, the best idea, and that means the, the funniest idea, the idea that brings the small smile to the corners of your mouth, that idea will win. It it will win. It's Twee, the cheerful, you know. Twee treads on the tail of the tiger. No blame, no blame, because t- the the cheerfulness of Twee overcomes the inherent reticence of the world. Uh, the light touch is the right touch. And if if psychedelics don't give this to you, you may be an incurable case, you know. There may be no, no hope for you but Martin Heidegger uh, in high doses or whatever they do with people uh, who have uh, displaced funny bones. The, the world is truly a strange place getting stranger all the time. It's more the character of a pun or... A, uh, uh, an optical illusion than it is the, the, the world of humorless, scurrying, gray atoms and invisible forces that we inherit from nature. The laboratory of being is your own body, your experience. I mean, everything else is going to come as an unconfirmable rumor, so fraught around with epistemological problems that you might as well toss it out at the beginning and not even bother with it. The basic thing is the empowerment of experience. That's why sexuality has always raised such a ruckus uh, in, uh, uh, among authority freaks. It's why the psychedelic is so unsettling. It's why youth itself is unsettling uh, because these things cause symmetry breaks they cause uh, a shift in perspective but this is in fact at this point in time exactly what we have to have it may be you know that we're going to rack and ruin but it's not it's not an unconscious process there are the technologies the information retrieval systems Uh, the engineering capacities to fight like hell against the dying of the light if that's what's going on but the will has to be activated and the problem is that the people creating the problems which are the people in the high-tech industrial democracies people like you and me are the furthest from the consequences of the problems you know i mean here we anticipate uh, the apocalypse and it's a it's a theological discussion you go to somalia and the apocalypse is well underway it's moved beyond the planning stage in many parts of the world but the parts that we don't go to and yet we represent for all our humility and financial difficulties whatever they may be we represent probably the 5% of the world's people who have some ability to contact, control, and direct the resources and the technologies uh, that are available on this planet. I mean, if you're able to sit here at Esalen this evening, then you automatically are in that 5% classed as, you know, the world controllers, uh, you and your friends, Yeah.
0: Why can't uh, if enough people lock into that space um, of like undeniable unity to cause al- almost an epidemic on the planet of that?
1: Well, I'm not worried. I, I think that what is happening is a transformational process, not the bankruptcy of ideology, not the spin-down of technical civilization. I'll argue t- through much of tomorrow and tomorrow evening that history is not our fault that you no more can blame us for the shape of human history than you can blame a fetus for the unfolding morphology within the womb that uh, history is the necessary distortion of an animal species to lead it to the brink of an ontological transformation I. Uh, when we get into this issue of politics it's a very tricky issue I think from to handle from a psychedelic point of view because the psychedelic point of view as I read it at a fairly deep level is that it's a done deal it's okay you know basically we're going to make it we've been on a straight line vector for millions of years with this transcendental attractor that has shaped us, called us out of matter, and is revealing itself through us. But knowing that is not permission for uh, sitting on your can or ceasing to participate in the struggle to create a just and, uh, and caring society. It does mean that you shouldn't worry. That worry is off the menu, that you don't know enough to worry is, is one of the arguments to be made. Uh, so I think what we it's basically a case of we need to act uh, locally and think not simply globally, but cosmically. And, and in our cosmic ruminations, struggle to erase boundaries and to see that, you know, the difference between us and the next species in waiting in the evolutionary elevator and the difference between life and death and the difference between pre- and post-history, these are differences that can be easily erased. And when they are, uh, what comes through is this lost sense of unity and purpose and rightness that we're uh, trying to recapture well that's all I really wanted to say about that tonight I didn't want to keep you past ten we'll get together here tomorrow morning uh, get a good night's sleep the baths are open 24 hours a day thank you very much bring your questions, controversies and whatever and we'll dig into all this with great gusto on the morrow thank you very much It's only 10 a.m. and already it's been mighty peculiar <laughs> well are there did anybody have any particularly strong reaction to last night or feel that we were started off in a wrong direction or the right direction or in other words is there any feedback from all of that last night so i'm beginning to have the feeling that the the Need to stoke the furnace of psychedelic uh, information is a task that is being generalized into the culture, and that I, which w- is a relief for me because it w- frees me to discuss my own private megalomaniacal concerns, which are this mathematical effort to model history that will probably be mentioned off and on all day and then dealt with in detail uh, uh, this evening. Strangely enough, the novelty wave or my theory about how history is structured uh, normally leads me into a situation of, of whipping the horse ever faster toward apocalypse and millennium. But... Uh, very recently we've entered into a phase where it's more like you should get out your lawn chairs and uh, learn to play solitaire or something because at least by the, by the expectations of the time wave uh, uh, the next couple of years are going to be incredibly repetitious mundane, pattern-bound and ho-hum compared to what we've just been through we, we really have been through uh, though from our close perspective it's hard to tell it probably one of the most profound decades or five or six years in of the 20th century i mean the whole slow catastrophic collapse of marxism and what it's meant for islam and capitalism uh, that all is now in the past but but very dramatic uh, yeah i like talking about my mm, um chaotic notion of time because it seems to me the the scientific data that is arising week by week is supporting my originally somewhat far-fetched contention that the, w- the universe is getting weirder and weirder and weirder at an extraordinarily asymptotic rate. I mean, just two examples in the last six weeks, both a bizarre. Uh, this ice drilling project in Greenland has brought up a 325,000-year continuous record of snowfall. And because of the decay of isotopic oxygen, uh, there's some mumbo-jumbo by which you can determine the temperature of the air at the time the snow fell. So what they're getting is a continuous temperature record over 375,000 years. And... uh, they can hardly believe what it's telling them. It's telling them that uh, the climate, the weather has been nuts for tens of millennia. That there are five-year periods where the world temperature fell 20 degrees and remained there for 70 years and then bounced back. Uh, a picture of completely chaotic climatological fluctuation has emerged just in the last two months. I mean, they're holding congresses and uh, flying people in and drilling a second core to try to understand this because it's always been thought that the, the planet's climates were fairly stable except that the human factor was capable of perturbing it. Now it looks like these glaciations are merely m- macrophysical reflections of microreflections in the climate that are extremely dramatic. so that 's one piece of data that 's arrived in the last six weeks, uh, arguing that the universe is a strange and chaotic place on an accelerated uh, uh, trajectory toward novelty, the other is much more peculiar and in fact it's at a level in the scientific literature where nobody has panic has not quite broken out but are, are you all aware of this very large object which has entered uh, orbit around the planet Jupiter and which has broken up into between 17 and 25 objects this is not coming to you from the Fortean times and uh, you know the star this is astronomy sky and telescope Uh, this it's apparently a cometary body that but it's very large and it has broken up and gone into Jovian orbit but the orbit is decaying rapidly and the, the whole situation is explicit enough that they can say with reasonable certainty that next July 22nd these objects are going to uh, encounter the Jovian surface with a uh, greater release of kinetic energy than the extinction which wiped out the dinosaurs 65 million years ago. Uh, the, the impact as presently calculated will occur on the side of the planet turned away from the earth but within six hours that side will swing into view of terrestrial telescopes the amount of energy released in the impact it will be possible to calculate it by studying the reflected flash off the Jovian satellites So, you know, what we're talking about here is, in the words of Astronomy Magazine, a once-in-a-hundred-million-year event. But that's the clue that something weird is going on. Once-in-a-hundred-million-year events don't happen in the lifetime of a single human being. I mean, what are the odds Of that, and we also had Marilyn Monroe, the Kennedy assassination, the landing on the moon. I mean, you know, how many once in a hundred million year events can you cram into a single uh, lifetime? Well, I don't, I don't know what this thing going on out at Jupiter is about, but it's it's bizarre. Uh, It's bizarre that in science now, uh, things like uh, um, chaos theory and uh, and, uh, nonlinear dynamical systems and these kinds of things, these intellectual tools arrive just as the assumed stability of reality established by newtonian gentlemen in powdered wigs working through their brass instruments that all flies apart and there's just you know the heaving oceans of the spaghetti of ambiguity as string theory and non-localization stretches you from here to a nebulganubian back again uh it's uh uh the feedback between the perceiver and the object perceived is tightening. I don't know if this is a psychedelic theme. It's the theme of my psychedelic uh, um, explorations. I think of, uh, of the, the shamanic model as inherited from classical aboriginal shamanism worldwide, which is a model of levels that the universe is somehow made of, of distinct levels, energetic, geographic, however, and, but that there is an access, an elevator, that allows you to move from level to level. And this is usually some extraordinary technique of physical stress production, or in the hipper societies, uh, a pharmacological intervention of some sort. And the information um, is deployed differently on each level. They're like uh, uh, defined point uh, perspectives on the stuff of being, you know, the raw perceptual input of experience. And I really think that, um, and I don't understand you know you can't quite wrap language around it but it has something to do with the fact that we're physical creatures at all uh, that the mind at its deepest organizational level reflects the the geometric principles of the organization of space and time so the mind as present in us at this moment has been folded and sculpted and shaped into a tool for threat detection in three-dimensional space uh, because the body is a fragile thing borne along upon the vicissitudes of matter. But when you take a psychedelic or when you perturb ordinary brain chemistry by any means, illness, high fever, lightning strike, hunger prolonged drumming uh, f- grief you know all of these ways then uh there is a transition of level or what Merciliad, in this wonderful phrase called the rupture of plane the rupture of the mundane plane isn't that a great uh, uh, you'd almost swore you'd have to smoke DMT to get together a phrase like the rupture of the mundane plane. Well, uh, but then the the organization of the information on these different planes has hitherto been largely thought to be somewhat um, expressionistic or haphazard a la... Uh, the Jungian maps of the unconscious or something like that I think that there is actually more to be gained by making a strict mathematical model and saying that the shaman is a person who penetrates to a literal informational hyperspace of some sort and to take it literally in terms of a geometric explanation, because think about it for me. Um, shamans are primarily, in in their aboriginal setting, they function in in three roles. They predict weather. Weather prediction is very important in shamanic cultures. They. Um, <clears throat> tell where game has gone in other words they they monitor the food source of the group and direct the hunting and gathering activities according to the availability of the of the of the uh, food and then thirdly they cure disease and this is very important and they are incredibly adept at choosing patients who will recover. This would be a cynical way of putting it. You know, They are very adept at choosing patients who make r- miraculous recoveries. Some of you may know the, the tape recordings of Maria Sabina's Mushroom Velada" made by Wasson, where an, an 11-year-old child is brought to her and she says that she won't shamanize for this case, that this kid is not going to make it. And then he doesn't make it. He dies within three weeks. Well, uh, if, you're a, if you're a materialist and uh, of the modern stripe, then the only way you can deal with this testimony about shamanism, about the precognitive knowledge of weather and game movement and the miraculous ability to cure, is to deny it to deny it and say this is some kind of sight of hand or they are very closely observant of nature and they you know in other words some only this argument uh, that, that denigrates the thing but I think that when you actually look at the ethnographic data from all parts of the world collected in the field by people who spent time with the Asande and the Kikuyu and the Witoto and the, you know, so forth, the Kyrgyz and so on. The body of testimony of what we would call paranormal phenomenon is sufficiently impressive that uh, another model has to be called into play. And I think it's that there are ways to push the mind by extraordinary uh, pharmacological uh, encounters or stress into a kind of higher dimensional space. Uh, This would be sort of like the idea that the indeterminacy that adheres to matter at the quantum mechanical level the fact that it is displays itself as particle or wave, depending on the questions being asked, that that fundamental indeterminacy apparently has to be amplified through every level of nature, including the human level, so that when you get to ourselves, the mystery of ourselves is the particulate, finite, and Dissolving body and the intuition of the unseen, wave like, infinite uh, spirit, the indwelling entelechy that creates the cohesion of the nexus of actual occasions that is the coordinated prehension of an organic system. Right? <laughs> 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 <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: we'll just stop there uh, yes
0: let me see
2: if I, I'm getting this right somehow <laughs> I'm getting the image of you mathematically um, decoding uh, a, a, the language of the gods in a way
1: well, except it isn't exactly a language. It's more like a point of view. Um, yeah, well, I mean, what I'm suggesting here is that the the magic, if that's the word, the or the the grandiosity, the the power of ecstatic exhalation that resides in the psychedelic is because it is literally a change of dimensional perspective, and and you know. It, well, Well, let's see. I hope this isn't too obscure an example. But uh, in the 14th century, Petrarch climbed a mountain somewhere in Italy and, and wrote a passage about it and invented the observation of landscape and nature in this single work of art because people had never done that before. It was a new an entirely new thing to climb a mountain and look at nature and feel the unity and the grandiosity of it and write about it and it was part of renaissance humanism it was part of getting people out of those dreary urine stenchy cathedrals that they had been hanging out in for far too long so uh, uh... What I'm suggesting is that, in a sense, the shaman is someone who climbs an an inner mountain, but a real mountain, a geometric mountain, and then has a higher perspective, that it's a shift of awareness. I mean, we all are body and soul, spirit, uh, but, but to the degree that we concentrate on one, we occlude the other. I don't really like the sound of that because it sounds like you could turn that into some kind of asceticism, which in principle I'm against. But I think the key is paying attention to mental life uh, without bias. One of the things I've been talking to the staff here because I'm scholar in residence is Finnegan's Wake. And we've been taking it apart and looking at it and n- noticing that part of the genius of Joyce in the way the wake is composed is that all terms are transparent. You know, every every word you can see through it to other words, to other associations, to other connections. So nothing is explicit and overt and defined. It's a mental universe, not Uh, You see, the novel can take two directions. It can try to create what's called realism, which is, in a sense, an attempt to duplicate the laws of optics on the printed page in narrative, so that you have, you know lord and lady so-and-so moving about their country home uh, with the crisis of daughter and servants or whatever uh, and but then that's not the world those people are living in that's the world you would see if you were a camera watching mm-hmm. the world they're living in is uh, a much less Crystalline and temporally defined world. It's a world where memory and anticipation are in a disstolic relationship as the attention of the characters ebbs and flows, focuses and merges. This is what a great deal of modern literature is about. Yeah. Okay, and that
0: of us really goes in mind body dualism, and that fact
1: well trapped in artifice trapped in art i mean in a sense yeah that's why proust and joyce who are so different can be seen to be essentially about the same thing a true rendering of experience is very hard i mean this is the great challenge uh, i think that's why you know somebody asked me recently what was i doing with myself or where was i going um And it seems to me that once you work your way into all of these places, the real test of your psychedelic authenticity is the ability to write a novel. Because what you have to show to yourself, not necessarily to anyone else, but what you have to show to yourself is that you can put yourself into... uh, the mother giving birth, the fascist interrogating a prisoner, uh, the, the child at play, the gangster plotting the advance of his career. In other words, that the human experience is open to you, that you know what it's like, hooker and priest, saint and sinner. It's all accessible to you. That's the sign to me that a person has really dissolved their boundaries and done their inner work because the quintessence of understanding is the ability to, to occupy other people's points of view. I certainly make no claims in this area. In fact, I'm very uh, weak in, in this area. I learned a long time ago by watching how I play chess that my emotional immaturity is right on the surface because the way I play chess is I make brilliant plans and then I, care, I attempt to carry them out as though there was me and nobody else there <laughs> and, and meanwhile coming at me across the board is this bewildering series of interruptions <laughs> <laughs> for which to off the plan and uh, I mean this is this is the Via Dolorosa right the, the, the street of tears uh, and I think there's a, tr- a crying tradition among North American Indians uh, you know stress is what we're talking about on one level I'm not sure that it may be that there are two ways to attain these places stress and psychedelics and then we could have a discussion about whether psychedelics are a subset of stress or not i mean that that's sort of like whether you think of surfing as stress i mean obviously it's strenuous and it can kill you but some people think of it uh as exhilarating there are many ways to perturb the mind i mean the reason when we talk about uh psychedelics we fall automatically into a vocabulary of travel we talk about journeys and uh, and tripping and that sort of thing is because travel is how people normally attain this if they don't have pharmacological means and that's always been respectable i mean even among very bourgeois societies like the 19th century england you know the summer holiday in italy was de rigueur and if you saw room with a view you know this was where it all this was where eros and the dark Latinate unconscious was expected to swarm over these pale English women and and initiate them into unspeakable uh, pleasures and debauchery and doesn't sound half bad does it?
2: (laughs) Yes You you talked about um, I'm having having trouble wrapping my mind around it but my question has to do with one of the topics of the, uh, the weekend, which is um, ethos versus politics, and it's kind of inner versus outer. But also, psychedelics um, are a way of experiencing you know, other, other planes of reality, or, or reality in a different way. But it seems as if you're also talking about a way of using that that requires some, I don't know whether it's an interdiscipline or... How do you how you, um, use it so it's not
1: just
2: um, a distraction, um, a drug, a um, you know what I mean? Well, so, I think. Your th- local courthouse. <laughs> 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 well, okay. the, the the huh? Fetish it, the
1: fetish object like. You know. Well, I think the the simple answer to how do you do it without trivializing it is that you do doses that scare you you know i mean these things are not uh physically dangerous uh and and the and yet that they are terrifying at what are pharmacologically completely harmless doses i mean the ld50 for psilocybin is uh hundreds of milligrams per kilogram and yet, if you take anywhere above 25 milligrams of psilocybin, I think the the, the strongest wayfaring soul reaches for the brake pedal somewhere in there. Uh, it, it's amazing how we just skim the surface of this. I mean, those... Beca- and, and we can't go very deep because language fails. I mean... Most of you who have done committed doses know that you go into a realm where it gets weirder and weirder and weirder. And then finally the very machinery of explaining to the observer what is happening begins to melt. <laughs> and, and then you are there with it for a while. And then you descend out of that, and the language mechanism reactivates and says, you know, we are now leaving the utterly unspeakable behind. And uh, uh, so uh, it's an extraordinary thing. I mean, the motivation of, of, t- of my career, I guess, is I just can't believe how this much strangeness could lay that close to the surface and the enterprise of human history be conducted for 10,000 years with people running around trying to do weird things, writing polyphonic music and, you know, the Rudolphine Court and Hieronymus Bosch and all this stuff, and right under the surface uh, just a a Niagara of peculiarity and strangeness that, that makes no sense to me when I put on the hat of the biologist... You know why should a, an advanced animal of some sort have this curious relationship to an invisible river of imagery running collectively through the brains of all and each? Uh, what what is that about? And the beauty of it, the, uh, the as in Blake's word, the futurity of it the fact that in the glistening of the flowing waters of the unconscious, you glimpse not only the square-topped towers of Ilium and the ruins of Carthage and Petra and all that, but you also see uh, the intimations of some kind of magnificent future that, you know, is it in the imagination? Is it directly ahead in the time stream is it lost in dream the whole circumstance of being alive and being a self-reflecting thinking human being is just too peculiar for words yeah
2: would you say that as far as the terror of this goes and what makes people hit the off button push push the brakes to to the floorboard is that uh, in Something you were saying last night about lost continents, remember? Mm-hmm. It seems like this psychedelic experience isn't new in the sense of a cultural endeavor. Uh, let's call that the discovery of the unconscious, and that Freud, you know, attributed that to the Romantic poets. So I, would you say that one could see the whole modern and postmodern era of this progressive discovery of this lost continent, the unconscious. And perhaps it is, as Native Americans would put it, the sort of purification in the sense that psychoanalysis, the analysis of the unconscious, uh, brings to light hidden aspects of, of truth of people's lives or their collective lives that no one wanted to face but these things have been layered in the unconscious so it's a process of bringing things to light or as Carl Jung said the, this, the, enlightenment does not consist of visualizing figures of light but making the dark unconscious. Could you say that?
1: Well I'm not sure I understand the question if you're saying how derivative of, of I mean I basically agree with the premise I would just uh, Uh, push the thing further back into time I think where this all you know I mean it's fun to try and find various break points I mean was it Tim Leary was it Alfred Jarry was it L'Entremont was it uh, uh, the French symbolists Uh, uh, or I've been thinking about this a lot recently I think that uh, the what's popularly called the age of the marvelous indicates the real descent of the western mind toward the psychedelic confrontation when we look at the time wave tonight maybe we'll get around to talking about this but around uh, basically with the invention of printing in 1440 i now see books as uh, obviously a psychedelic drug of enormous power the early books were uh, manufactured uh, with chains on them so that they could be bolted to tables so that addicts uh, would not tear them loose and take them home and the the invention of printing and the uh, seizure of constantinople by the ottoman turk set off an age of uh, scientific advancement, exploration, so forth and so on, that led to the discovery of the new world only 500 years ago. And this had the impact on Europe that flying saucers on the White House lawn would have on us. I mean, it was an alien planet that had been discovered with trackless Jungles and temperate forests, and people clad in gold, practicing strange religions, and enormous trading. I mean, it was an alien civilization, and at the same time, uh, the grip of the medieval church was breaking down, and uh, people had a fascination with the bizarre, with the uh, phantasmagoria of natural existence they were bringing back birds of paradise from bougainville they were bringing back uh, carved Incan and Mayan material codices all of this stuff this is the period shortly then into it of the great flowering of European (coughs) magic the establishment of the Rudolphine court in Prague and all of that Uh, it was the age of the Wunnerkammerer the wonder cabinet, where you collected together stuffed birds, ammonites, Gnostic gems, bits of archaic detritus, large insects, narwhal horns, all of this stuff. You know, it was pre-Linnaean. It was uh, before the categorical mind had stepped in, and the whole thing was just a maelstrom of uh, individuated uh, data collections, and I think that's where the, the 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 psychedelic thing in in the West became explicit. Yeah. Uh,
2: back to this man's question about that actual uh, the, the taking of a, a psychedelic. Uh, I think it's real important that it be done with intent, hmm. and 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 to kind of ask for or put it out there, whatever it is that you
0: need or want.
1: Yes, you you have to talk to these things. You do it on an empty stomach, in silent darkness, in a situation where you feel secure, which can mean in your apartment with the phones unplugged and the door locked, or off in some jungle or somewhere. But it's very important, empty stomach, silent darkness. And intent as you say and then not reckless dose but committed dose you know not to see if it works it works other people have established that you don't need to do research to confirm that it's psychoactive you just you know do it and uh, and then you know there there are techniques for navigating through there The, the best is a pure heart but since we can't always come up with that uh, uh, you know sweating blood also helps uh, uh, and and in terms of actual physical techniques uh, singing this is what I learned in the Amazon that you know you don't always have enough presence of mind to breathe but if you will sing the breathing will take care of itself and and uh, uh, the body is an instrument. I mean, the yogins they got that right. The body is an instrument for tuning through these um, dimensions. I don't know what it all confirms. Like, I don't rush to embrace any particular esoteric school. In fact, I'm fairly scornful of all of that because I see how it's used to promote priestly hierarchy and uh, mumbo-jumbo and that sort of thing uh, but certainly science doesn't have the whole story I mean the human body is an incredible esoteric instrument it's just that I think be, you need to self-teach yourself yeah the, um, the shaman's perception which is I guess that's what you're trying to get to the ability to see on that con-
2: subconscious level starts with pure heart pure mind because they're largely because their
1: minds aren't cluttered with everything that the rest of ours are they don't have to overcome the knowledge the facts the 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 awareness of the material life because they don't start with that right they start with
2: drugs and they start with purity way back when how do you um well how do you get past that how do you how do you how do you get you it would seem to me in this case the more you know the more and the more you know, the more difficult it would be to reach that pure second conscious level, where it's just a matter of knowing through the uh, the vision of, of, of what your conscious will do once the barriers or the neurotransmitter. The that are
1: well, I don't know about that. I mean, I see the logic of it. I had a shaman tell me once in the Amazon. He said, uh, "You know, it's not easy for us to do this." It's no easier for us to do this than for you to do it, and i I imagine <clears throat> watching giving shamans pure dmt and stuff like that and watching them go through it that you know they're macho, they do it, but they they're they at the core are as sensible and afraid as anybody would be you everybody comes down to a local language structure and a local set of cultural myths and the shaman's job is to be uh outside behind and under that he's sort of an archetypal plumber and uh, he sees he knows where the shit goes he knows how to repair the system that everybody else Uh, Is invisible to everybody else I I think it's very challenging to do this stuff in any cultural context one thing you find that you may not expect when you go to the Amazon is not all shamans have the great zest for going as deep as possible there are a lot of shamans who whose attitude is you get in you do the work and you get out fast And you you take only as much as you need to.
0: You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Well, uh, we've just heard quite a lot in the last hour or so. In fact, I captured more quotes for the program notes than I usually do. Uh, I think 16 in all. And as you know, you can get to the program notes for today's podcast, which is number 356, at www.psychedelicsalon.us. But of all the quotes there, uh, well, the one that I think is uh, the most right on target at this moment is, and I quote, If we could feel the consequences of what we are doing, we would stop doing it. We're like someone half-awake inside a burning building. Half-awake in a burning building. It's, uh, it's hard to not understand that metaphor, and I'm afraid it's close to true. Well, there's a lot of other things I'd like to say, but uh, here's what I'm going to do right now. If you're like me, you would really like to hear the next part of this weekend workshop as soon as you can. And so would I. So I'm going to sign off for now and get started right away on the next part, which I hope to have out to you quite soon. So for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space.